Uh, intro. How do you want? How do you want to do that? Intro? <laughs> no. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what month? Is it? October. It's weird. October's. It's like the eighth, but it's the tenth. Yeah, we did that last October. Ah, oh, that's true. Would listeners get that? Like the throwback? Maybe they listen. That's true. That's true. <sighs> Why? What are you thinking? I don't know. If we could do like the surf, like bit on like we could be like surfer bros, put on like a voice, but I don't think that will. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that would work. Surfer bros. Surfer bros. Um, intro, intro, intro. <sighs> do we just do like a, like pretend like we're walking in and like preparing? The intro. That's pretty meta. Okay. That okay. Let's do that. Okay. <laughs> Three, two, one. Oh, but wait, haven't we been we've just been doing that for the past yeah, yeah. twenty seconds. Hmm. Guess we just get started. So what do you got in store for this episode, Jack? So this episode, Lewis, we have some very special guests talking about saints. And I've also written up a little piece on an 80-year-old radio broadcast that shook the United States to its core. <laughs> but what else do we have, Lewis? I'm, I'm led to believe that we've got a talk on World Teachers Day and also theories of consciousness. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... <laughs> how do we how do we end this? Shall we just Jack, do you know what's special about Saturday the twenty second of October? Saturday twenty second of October No, Joe, I haven't the foggiest what happened on the twenty second of October. Well, do you know how many days it is before the end of the year? Uh, if you know your maths, I mean, I I have a major in maths, so it'd be kind of disappointing. Well, what we've got roughly two months out, so that's roughly sixty, and you got the I'm going to say seventy one days. Close, uh, seventy days before the end of the year. So very close, Jack. Um, so the twenty second of October is also a day before World Mission Day, uh, where we celebrate the work of missionaries and those who use their lives to spread the gospel uh, and spread the good news of God. But the 22nd of October is a feast day of a very special saint. Uh, it's St. Pope John Paul II. And something very incredible happened in our diocese on the 22nd of October. Parish of East Gosford at St. Patrick's, they installed two first-class relics of St. Pope John Paul II. Can you by any chance guess what relics we might have gotten? Well, if you're saying first-class, I can only assume this is, you know, t top-tier relics. Um, hmm... Was it perhaps some clothing that he once wore? Close. Uh, probably even better than clothing. Better than clothing. Better than clothing. I'm going to hope it wasn't a urine sample. <laughs> um, no, but getting closer. Getting, getting closer. closer with the urine sample. Yep. Oh, okay. Uh, blood? Yes. Yep. Blood? <laughs> yep. Ugh. So they have his blood um, and they also have um, his hair. His hair? Yep. So both of them. Wow. Um, so I guess just to tell you a little bit about a relic. So a relic is an object or an article of special religious significance 
um, and it can be like the physical part of a saint, uh, like the bone or blood or hair, uh, and they are used as a memorial to the saint. Now, relics don't have any magic powers, um, but they are often associated with miracles, um, and people can use the relics to help them to pray for the intercessions of a saint. So East Gosford, they have two first-class relics. So there's a difference with first-class, second-class, and third-class. First-class relics are relics which are actually part of the saint, so like their body part, such as a, like the bone, a limb, or a hair. Second-class relics are something that was owned by the saint or used to torture a martyr. And third-class relics are anything that has touched a first-class relic. So, for example, clothing. Yeah. And I guess, like, I was very, like, fascinated about, like, Pope John Paul II. Like, he's a really incredible person. And recently, this year, I've been introduced to Theology of the Body. Whenever I've heard about it in the past, like, it's a very deep and very rich um, reading material. But Pope John Paul II, he talked about Theology of the Body at his homilies on his Wednesday audiences over a few years. And it was kind of to talk about the importance of the human body and our relationship with God. Now, if you just go and try and read Theology of the Body, um, it's going to be very complicated and it's very like in, in depth. But I read this Theology of the Body in One Hour by Jason Ebert. So I recommend this book, I guess, just to get a bit of a summary of, of what Pope John Paul II talks about. Um, and it's probably one of the best books I've read this year. We also had like a um, recently with our Mayus Young Adults group. We actually had a speaker come in, his name is Simon Carrington, and he talks about theology of the body in a very detailed way as well. And that was really helpful, I guess, in understanding the significance of the human body, but how we are made for each other, but also how we are made in the image of God. Did you want to know any some fun facts about Pope John Paul II? Joey, I would <laughs> love to learn some fun facts about Pope John Paul II. Well, something that I find very cool of him is that he actually was a skier. And he would like sneak away to go skiing and he skied until he was 73 years old. So I think that's pretty incredible. That is pretty cool mm -hmm. and pretty incredible. He also was a guy who also really liked going on outdoor adventures. So when he was young, he did a lot of camping and kayaking tri trips with young adults. And he would also secretly celebrate mass just when he was on camping trips. Um, and even though it was forbidden by a communist at the time. So pretty, pretty daring. Another fun fact is he had a really great memory. There are over 2000 bishops in the world but he knew every single one by name, and he had a map um, of all the bishops in the world, and he remembered every single one. So that's pretty incredible. Jeez, I need something like that to remember all the names of people in the parish, because <laughs> I am atrocious. Any other fun facts, Joe? He initiated World Youth Day, and a few of us will be going there next year, so can't wait for that. Excellent plug, Joanna, excellent yep. plug. Um, and also at the parish of East Gosford, so besides having the first-class relics, they've also established this kind of um, centre, so you can go in, um, there's a community room, there's a few things that you can do there. So it's kind of like a retreat centre. So next time you need to go to a retreat, you can check out East Gosford. Hmm. Well, I know, Joanna, that I'll be definitely keeping that in mind when I'm in need of checking out some first-class relics. Yes, some hair and blood of Pope John Paul II. There you go. Thank you very much, Joanna, for your time today. In October... 84 years ago, specifically on the 30th of October, 1938, millions of radio listeners were plunged into panic and hysteria. They had just been informed that their greatest fear had come true. Martians had landed on Earth and the invasion of the planet had commenced. This, of course, was false. The hour-long radio broadcast that so many heard on this day was the work of the Mercury Theatre, which was led by the famous Orson Welles. 
For those who don't know Orson Welles, he was the director, screenwriter, and main actor in what is credited by many as the best film of all time, Citizen Kane. But before he got involved in film, Welles led the theatre troupe called the Mercury Theatre. In 1937, they put on their first production. Within a year, CBS in New York granted them one hour a week on the radio for a segment titled Mercury Theatre on the Air. They performed various adaptations of plays and books that were altered perfectly for the medium of radio broadcasts. But on the 30th of October, for their Halloween special, they got a little more attention than they were hoping for. For the Halloween special, they made a radio adaptation of the novel written by H.G. Wells, titled War of the Worlds. This famous science fiction novel describes the catastrophic conflict between man and Martian. Written in 1897, the book made people's imaginations run wild, but the Mercury Theatre broadcast instead made people run wild. They began their broadcast with the following preface. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Now, whilst that preface only lasted 10 seconds, the entire broadcast lasted one whole hour. So unfortunately, quite a few people missed out on the preface and simply switched over to the channel mid-broadcast. How many people? 12 million people. 12 million people tuned in to hear the Mercury Theatre convincingly rattle off a series of news bullets and interruptions describing explosions on Mars mysterious objects crash landing in New Jersey, and Martians killing off civilians with their heat rays. I now leave you to listen to segments of the original 1938 radio broadcast. Remember, despite how real it sounds, Martians have not landed on your back doorstep. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. The touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Capacita. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We are speaking to you from the observatory in Princeton, New Jersey, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Pearson. Uh, One moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Uh, Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mr. Brooks. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost... Earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson, 
Could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Oh, hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. Paint for you a word picture of a strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see if the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say, uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish white. I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The, uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this earth. Friction with the earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and you can see it's cylindrical oh, shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw and this thing must be hollow. He's moving! Look at that! Keep those men back! Keep those idiots back! Take off! The top's loose! Go, Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I, I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's calling someone or something. I can see turning out of that black hole two luminous discs. The eyes, it might be a face, might be almost... But heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me that... Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large. It's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that face, it, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is that's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seems to oh, quiver and pulsate, and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back. It's, Seen plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen. I can't find words. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Fields caught up by the woods, the fires, the, the gas tanks, tanks for the automobiles, spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now. 
about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster or burned to cinders by its heat ray. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City, the Bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. The enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, waiting wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be timed in space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. Steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. 
They're running toward the East River, thousands of them. Dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's... It's 50 feet. I hope, listener, you enjoyed that step back in time. If you take away anything from this segment, it's that you shouldn't believe everything you hear. My name's Jim McKeon, signing off. The 28th of October is World Teachers Day. Now, as a teacher, I'm pretty pleased that we get a whole day just to ourselves to celebrate. But then I'm also reminded there's lots of other World Day. The 19th of July is apparently World Hot Dog Day. So, you know, I guess I'm just as important as a hot dog, but I'll take it. There's been a lot of chat at my school about what makes a good teacher. When asking some of the kids, they talk about things like being compassionate, being kind, being knowledgeable, just generally being a positive role model in the classroom. Now, I think I agree with all that, but how do we do all those things? How do we be kind consistently? How do we be a good role model? Who should we be role modeling ourselves off of? Well, you may guess. But in the Bible, there is a pretty, you know, he's a pretty good teacher. Uh, You may have heard of him. He's called Jesus. Jesus is often referred to, among other things, as teacher, rabbi. And I think we can model ourselves off Jesus as teachers. You don't have to physically be part of the education profession. But we are all role models and we are all teachers to others. If you have a capability and you're willing to share it, you are a teacher. If we go from John 3 verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so if we want to be teachers, and if we want our future generations to be educated, it's important that we direct them to the ultimate teacher and the ultimate love and sustainer of life, Jesus. So if you're still in school, thank you, teachers. If you're not, thank God that he has come down to give us his teachings so that we can learn and we can one day celebrate the good life with him. Over the last few episodes of the podcast, you've joined me as I've discussed the spectrum of sedation and the wondrous benefits of sleep. Today, with my good friend, Lewis, 
for the final installment on consciousness, we shall be explaining how our understanding of consciousness has changed throughout the years, and we'll be discussing what theories of consciousness currently reign supreme. The question of the day, ladies and gentlemen, how does consciousness work? Some of the first ponderings of consciousness, like many topics that require immense thinking, were done by Greek philosophers. Today, we'll be focusing on the work of Socrates. Socrates, like us Catholics, believed in an afterlife. Socrates believed that death is the separation of the soul from the body, and once you die, your soul would go to a heavenly realm where you would live amongst the gods. He believed that the soul was immortal and that it wasn't just a result of how our body was made. One of Socrates' arguments was called the recollection argument. In our reality, there are certain characteristics of people and objects we cannot see, like beauty and virtue. Our senses do not see these characteristics. Our mind decides whether people or objects hold these certain qualities. Socrates labelled these qualities as absolutes. Absolutes cannot be replicated in our world. For example, perfectly straight lines do not exist in nature. However, we know what straightness is in our minds, and we can detect when something is not straight. Socrates says that this ability to perceive straightness, one of the absolutes, comes from knowledge prior to our birth. Our soul once belonged to a realm of absolutes. We know these absolutes from before our birth, but yet they are forgotten at birth. Socrates says that through living, we are able to relearn these absolutes. We recollect them. It was due to this recollection argument and other arguments that Socrates believed that the soul was immortal. Another Greek philosopher named Simeus argued at the time that much like how a harp built with its many parts will produce music, a person built with its many parts will produce a soul. He compared the music of a harp to the soul. Both are invisible. When the harp is destroyed, music can no longer be created. Thus Simeus argued that once the body was destroyed, so was the soul. But Socrates reminded Simeus of the recollection argument. If the soul is alive prior to birth, then the soul must be independent of the body. After the early Greek philosophers, consciousness was in touch for a while. But eventually, a familiar friend of ours began to ponder. So a few steps down the road from Socrates, we meet St. Thomas Aquinas one of the greatest philosophers in history and a doctor of the church. Aquinas argues that we human beings are composed of matter and form. So the body is matter and the soul is the form? Yep, exactly. For Aquinas, the soul is the principle or the source of life. He believes that the soul can exist without the body, and so it does after death, because the soul is incorruptible and immortal. Many argue that there was no such thing as a soul, because something immaterial couldn't understand material things. But since we clearly do understand material things, we can't have an immaterial soul. But Aquinas disagreed with this. To understand material things, he says it's necessary that the soul is immaterial. We can walk through how the soul might fit into a theory of consciousness, according to Aquinas. Aquinas argues that the process of understanding is the job of the soul, which works through our intellect. If I was looking at an apple, 
my eyes are taking in its shiny red color, forming a representation or an image of that apple in my brain and providing this image to my intellect. It's the intellect, the power of the soul, that understands that what I see is an apple and that it might be a good idea to now eat this apple for my breakfast. Aquinas' view on the soul and the body is really confusing at best. It has led some people to think that he supports the theory of something called dualism, that the soul and the body are separate. This is not the case, though. Aquinas emphasizes that the soul is one with the body, although unlike the body, the soul, which is the principle of life, is immaterial and immortal. Aquinas agrees with Aristotle that asking whether the soul and the body are one is as pointless as asking whether the parchment and the book are one. They are. Aquinas' beliefs still impact theology and philosophy today, but when discussing consciousness, in the last few decades, two contradicting theories have remained at the forefront of study, that is materialism and dualism. Let's get into some of the details. Materialism is the belief that consciousness emerges from the physical construction of our brain. Francis Crick, a neuroscientist, summed it up well in what he called the astonishing hypothesis. You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behaviour of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You're nothing but a pack of neurons. Science often forces us to believe this. Time and time again, people receive brain damage and their character changes entirely. They are no longer who they once were. People's original persona, their original soul, is lost. This would only occur if materialism is true. This would only occur if our mind and its pathways are what define us and our actions. But if materialism is true, that would mean that the emotions and personality of a person were nothing more than neurons whizzing around the brain. Our grief, love, anger, and joy are just the result of a billion microscopic balls flying around a pinball machine the size of your head. Does that lose some of the meaning of our actions? Does that devalue our relationships with others? Science does seem to support materialism, but if we knew it to be true, I can imagine the world would be filled with a little less purpose. Perhaps dualism might be more enticing. Right. So dualism opposes materialism. It's the belief that the mind is separate to matter. It's the belief that the mind is non-physical. If you follow this interpretation of the mind, you might be more comfortable in calling it a soul. If you've seen films with body swaps like Big, 17 Again, Freaky Friday or Scooby-Doo, you're well aware of how the body is irrelevant. It's the mind that makes the person. It's the soul. Most religions seem to be in favour of the dualist belief. They speak of the afterlife and reincarnation. This would make a lot of sense if one's soul is separate from the body. Surprisingly, there are claims that a scientific reason supports dualism. These reasons might be few and far between, but present nonetheless. One point stated that there is no way to measure a person's body or brain to figure out what they are thinking. We just have to ask them. There are several other theories on consciousness besides materialism and dualism. Even those two theories can be split up into several more specific sub-theories. Many theories align with Catholicism, 
but many don't. Is this aligning with faith important? It might be for you, but no matter what theory of consciousness we believe in, we should never let it belittle the value of our character and our relationships. We leave you on this discussion of consciousness with a quote by Dr. Zeus. Today you are you. That is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. Hello, Bernadette. So often when we talk about things, we talk about things that are more spiritually focused, like Miracle Mondays and things like that. You were talking to me about a particular saint the other day that was really interesting. And I think it would be nice if we share that particular saint with the listeners. Yes, Saint Maria Goretti. Beautiful, beautiful girl. Um, This little girl is one of the youngest saints in the church. Mm -hmm. She's only 11 years old when she died. She died a martyr. And it was about 1902, I think, when she passed away. So... Mm -hmm. Generally, her story is her father passed when she was really young uh-huh. and her mother was taking care of the farm. So her mother would go out and work yep. and she would take care of her younger siblings. As a good big sister would. As a good big sister would. Um, Maria was really devout with the faith. She just loved God so much. Um, but unfortunately, one day her neighbor, Alessandro, he was, I think, around 18 around the time. And unfortunately, he tried to force himself on her. A few times, um, but Maria was very insistent. She's like, no, this is really bad. We shouldn't do this. Alessandro, God does not want this for you. It's a sin. And unfortunately, this made Alessandro really angry. And so one day when he tried to force himself on her, he stabbed her multiple times, 14 times. Jeez. Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty violent. Mm -hmm. She, when her family found her, she was still alive. um, And she kept on saying, you know, we need to pray for Alessandro. God does not want this life for him like constantly praying for we have to constantly pray for him mm-hmm. he, her mum was there when she passed her priest was there um and alessandro was caught the next day yep. he went to prison um while he was in prison he was obviously filled with a lot of anger um and just did not want to hear anyone anyone everyone tried to help him but no he, he didn't he did, took no no counsel from yep. anyone um one day while he was in prison, he had a dream and Maria appeared to him. She presented 14 lilies um, to her, uh, to him. and for, After the 14 uh, times she was stabbed. For the 14 times that she was stabbed, yes. Wow. And she said, you need, to, you need to turn to the Lord. Like, this is not the life that the Lord wants for you. And obviously she's praying for him. Um, when he saw this, this, this vision of Maria, something happened in his heart. He's just was so astounded by the love that Maria had because mm-hmm. she said that she forgave him yeah. um, that from that day on he because of that love and that forgiveness he turned his life around so in prison he was in prison for I think 27 30 years it was a life sentence sure um, and as soon as he left prison uh, he you know he converted to the faith he prayed a lot he read his Bible Um, But as soon as he left prison, he went to visit Marie's mum. Now, what happened in all this time, Marie's mum couldn't care for her children because she had to work. So her children were taken away from her. Um, So not only did she lose her daughter. She lost all her children. She lost all her children. So Alessandro um, comes to her and is like, look, I'm really sorry about what I did. Maria appeared to me and said that she forgave me. Please forgive me too. And this beautiful mother said, well, if Maria forgave you, and so can I. 
Wow. A few other miracles occurred and finally made her a saint. And at this um, mass where she becomes a saint, um, Alessandro and Maria's mum walked down the aisle side by side just to witness um, what happened. Alessandro also um, entered into the, this, with the Franciscans, I think, and became a, a lay brother. And that's where he devoted his life um, to after God. that. Yeah, to God. Yeah. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on Maria? It, that level of forgiveness is astounding. Mm. It on the mother's behalf as well as as the girl. I can't imagine. I can't imagine being on my deathbed mm. and telling my family to pray for the the, the perpetrator. Like it's nuts. Mm. It's. It goes so against common understanding, but it it did bring healing. But her good was able to overcome his evil. Yeah, I think definitely in the culture nowadays when someone's really wronged us, um, we're encouraged to, to forgive, but yeah. mainly so that it can set us free. But I think what we forget is that our forgiveness can multiply. And so in this instance, it was threefold. When we see Maria's love for God and her ability to forgive, not only can Alessandro forgive himself, mm. but everyone else can forgive him, including Maria, Maria's mom. And that's really just beautiful how one act of love can just multiply yeah. in so many different directions. That's that's a really good point. I didn't think of that. I was thinking like, when we say we're encouraged to forgive people, I'm not even sure if that's super true anymore. Mm. Like, if someone's wronged you, it goes back to more eye, eye for an eye kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's if someone wronged you, you get it back, and you get. We have so many anti anti heroes in media, and all these these bad people doing bad things to even worse people, mm. and seeing, like, hearing a story about forgiveness and goodness multiplying. It's it's really beautiful, and it's it's. Yeah, it's definitely saint-worthy. Nothing else. It's almost like a miracle in itself. Yeah. That the that the act of um, the act of God can really work through people. God can work through any of our actions. Yes. Yeah. yeah, He uses our mess and makes Make miracles. It beautiful. Yeah.